We are outdoor ladies who hunt, fish, camp, and more, all while working in conservation. I am Julia Plugi with the Nebraska Game and Parks Commission. And I'm Rachel Alice with the Iowa Department of Natural Resources. And I am Tana Wagner with the Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks. And we want to see you outdoors. Hey listeners, welcome back to She Goes Outdoors. Ugh, this warm weather is getting me spoiled. It feels like spring has sprung. We're seeing some green starting to shoot up amongst all that brown dead grass. Ugh, that's always such a welcome sight. The birds are chirping. Um, there's just so much wonderful life, you know, coming back to us this spring. Um, you know, it. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to the rain too. I think I've talked about um, Jacob setting up some rain collection totes for us. And we're hoping that we're going to be able to collect enough rain to at least supplement the water to our garden um, this spring and the summer. So really looking forward to that. Uh, I am ultra antsy about my garden and I'm going to be planting a lot of wildflowers around our house this year for the pollinators. So that's something that um, I've learned through talking to many of our guests on this podcast is how important that is. And even though it makes me a little bit anxious, I'm also waiting until the weather gets a bit warmer to disturb any of that leftover leaf litter and clean out those flower beds. Because as we've learned, a lot of our pollinators do overwinter in those leafy places um, and amongst all that debris. So I know it makes me anxious. I'm sure it makes you all anxious too. But if you can, leave those flower beds in place. Don't uh, disturb that leaf litter just yet. If you have any leftover from fall, give those pollinators a good chance. Um, another thing we're going to do this spring is we're going to hold off on mowing the yard to make sure that our early pollinators have lots to eat. Those dandelions and henbit that come up, um, it's hugely important and some of the first food that our pollinators have access to. So um, I'm really committing this year. Uh, my yard might look a little bit crazy, but hopefully it's surrounded with happy, buzzing, fluttering pollinators. And I just cannot wait to sit on my deck surrounded by wildflowers and uh, surrounded by all those pollinators and read a good book in the spring breeze. Ugh, I think about it all the time. Oh, listeners, you know, sometimes I think I have to laugh. I think sometimes it's just an excuse that we, we don't have to mow, you know, one or two more times in the year. <laughs> but, uh, but Tana has so many good points that we are just itching for for spring. Um, we just got here in Iowa. We just got through our um, state archery tournament. We had about twenty two hundred kids, and I say kids four through twelfth grade. So some are taller than me. So it, it <laughs> is hard to call them a kid. But uh, we had about twenty two hundred archers out at our state fairgrounds um, shooting archery, and it was amazing and and a wonderful weekend. But you know, Tana and I often talk about books that we enjoy. Um, I've had a, a love of of books since a small child, you know. Um, I have to say, one of my favorites was was the Laura Ingalls Wilder series, and and just the idea of running on Plum Creek and and just getting out and exploring. And so, um, you know, we want we want our listeners to think back. Do you have a Do you have a book that you read as a child that really got you fired up about the outdoors? Really sparked that interest. Um, you know, one of those ones that you couldn't put down, you just wanted to research more and find out why, why, why. Um, it, it is amazing how books can inspire, books can just kind of light passions that we didn't know were there. Um, we talked a little bit about Braiding Sweetgrass and and the, the love we have for that book, but we're excited, so excited actually, um, this morning to to have a an author with us. We have Ron Robaugh Jr. with us this morning to jump on the mic and talk about one of his book series um, that chronicles the fiction lives and adventures of the hunting family, the Orions, in the Pennsylvania wilds. Ron, we are so glad to have you. Welcome. Thank you. Good morning to both of you and to everyone who is listening. Um, it's great to be here. Well, Ron, we are so excited to talk with you today. Like Rachel mentioned, you know, we both have um, books from our childhood that we were really inspired by, inspired by humans and our interactions with nature um, and just with the wilderness in general. And it's funny that you mentioned the Laura Ingalls Wilder series, because that's exactly what came to mind, Rachel, when I was thinking of what that book was for me and hearing my mom read that to us. Um, so, Ron, I'm going to give you a little bit of an introduction, but I do want you to, um, in your own words, tell us more about yourself. But to kick things off, you all, we have 
an esteemed author in our presence. Ron Rohrbaugh is a professional conservation scientist and author. And uh, Ron got his love of nature through hunting, fishing, and camping in the backwoods of Pennsylvania. So um, a little bit out of the way of what we would normally uh, get to hear from on the podcast. So we're excited to kind of change up the scenery, if you will, and talk to Ron about what that was like. Uh, Ron's recent works include A Traditional Bow Hunter's Path and Living Wild with the Orions, which is an adventure slash historical fiction book series that uses storytelling to teach both kids and adults about nature, history, wilderness living, wild food, hunting, and so much more. Um, there are so many incredible messages within this book series. Um, another cool thing about Ron is that Ron travels the country full-time in an RV with his family, where he is on a crusade to help save wild places, share wild food, and just kind of uh, be every child's gateway drug to nature. So, uh, you know, there's a funny note here, not to be alarmed if you see a family toting longbows through a campground because it's probably Ron and his crew. So <laughs> be sure to say hello and um, join in because you're guaranteed some outdoor fun stopping in with them. So, Ron, before we get into your books and your background and all that, we always like to kind of open the mic up and and allow you to give a little bit more about yourself. Like, where'd you come from? What was your childhood like? How did you end up in this awesome career path? How did you end up driving around the country in an RV with your whole family? Yeah. Um, and and just some of your uh, current hobbies and 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 where you came from. So I'm going to toss it your way. Yeah, that sounds great. I'd be happy to fill you in. And, and just so everyone knows, um, you know, as you described, we do travel full time, you know, in a camper with our family and we're camped right now. We're doing what we call boondocking. And that's dry camping with no power, um, no water. And so the kids and my wife are at the camper now in a national forest where there's no cell signal. And I drove into the nearest town and I'm sitting in my truck talking to all of you on a little Wi-Fi router that I have rigged up in here. And uh, I can't run the truck because it's going to make too much noise. And I'm in Louisiana, so it's getting toasty in here already. So uh, we'll, we'll see how all of this goes. <laughs> so, all right, back to the original question. So, yes, I grew up in Pennsylvania. I had sort of an interesting childhood. Um, the year I was born, my dad got the wild idea to buy an amusement park. And so I was raised in a family-run amusement park. They don't have many of those today. Nowadays, you have like Six Flags and Disney World. And this was like 17 amusement rides and concession stands, cotton candy, the whole bit. Um, and so that's how I grew up. My dad loved to hunt. He was sort of a first-generation hunter. He took me with him from the time I could keep up with him. I was on his heels and learned about hunting in the outdoors from him. And at the same time, I had a grandmother who was a birder. Um, she had bird feeders all around her house. And I would set myself up at the windows when I went to her place and watch the birds. And she taught me all about birds. And so, you know, even though I was being raised in sort of a crazy carnival atmosphere, my brain and heart was always with the outdoors. Like it was the, when it came time for me to graduate from high school and go somewhere to get a, a degree in college. There was never really any doubt, you know, in what I wanted to do. It had to be something related to the outdoors. And it ended up being um, wildlife biology, ecology and forestry. Um, I went to school at Penn State and got bachelor's and master's degrees and then traveled around a little while, various jobs. As you two both know, um, the life of a young wildlife biologist <laughs> includes the itinerant field jobs here and there, sleeping outdoors, low pay, eating rice and beans, you know, did all that. Um, and then eventually landed a really good job at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology and spent uh, almost 25 years there um, in the conservation science program um, when I left, I was the assistant director there, and I worked at uh, the National Audubon Society after that for a while before we decided to hit the road, and uh, I decided to try to make a run at it full-time with writing. What a what a wild crashing together of worlds, Ron. That, that is truly a very unique background. Yeah, yeah, it is, and it, you know, I think I, I credit some of that crazy background to, um, you know, to be able to write, you have to have things to write about. And to get things to write about, you have to have experiences. And I've had a lot of experiences. I've been very lucky that way. And 
So it gives, it gives me a lot of different perspectives from which to write about the outdoors. Sure. And Ron, I do want to mention for our listeners, um, Ron mentioned that he worked at the Cornell Lab and National Audubon Society. Um, we, If those sound familiar to you listeners, that's because um, you may have heard them on our birding episode. So um, if you want to learn more about those organizations and um, ways to get involved in birding, like through Citizen Science with the Christmas Bird Count, go back and find our birding episodes and our Christmas Bird Count episode. Um, really, really fascinating stuff about how you can get into birding, a lot of wonderful apps and um, resources out there for for you, wonderful guides, and then also you can be a citizen scientist and actually help gather some of that data. So um, do be sure to go check that out. But Ron, I'm curious, um, I just, with you kind of living off the grid and also being a science communicator, something I personally struggle with is the want to like go off the grid to delete my Facebook page to do all that, but then also kind of feeling um, you know, a higher calling or an obligation to be out there on social media and be connected to technology and to these channels to help promote science communication and um, share that with people. Do you ever kind of have to battle back and forth with that between wanting to just disappear in the wilderness and wanting to be front and center communicating with folks about these ideas? Every minute of every day. You said <laughs> that very well. I that You've just described, I think, how a lot of people who love the outdoors feel but also want to be able to share it. So, yeah, I mean, I would love to just delete all my accounts and pretend the rest of the world didn't exist um, and live off the grid entirely. But I, I love the outdoors and nature and kids so much that I feel an obligation to pass that on. Like we don't, you know, I, we meet a lot of families as we travel. I see the light in kids' eyes when I teach them how to hold a bow and how to shoot or cast a fishing rod or start a fire with a ferro rod or something. And I realize that they're not, they're seeing it for the first time because they don't have a mom or a dad or a grandparent who's outdoor connected. And so if I can get that just once in a while in real life or through social media or better yet through my books where I can really dive into it, you know, I just feel obligated to do that, to light those kids up and to to expose them to the things that I love. And Ron, one of the things that I really appreciate um, about your work is that you also are so um, tuned into the Women's Outdoor Network as well and um, the power that comes from that, whether it's um, women with their social networks or women with their families. I really, really love that you take special care to recognize that. And it's kind of like at a wedding, um, you know, you're talking about the spark in a kid's eye or whatever that coming to life and um, realizing that new skill. It's almost like at a wedding where people say to look at the groom when the bride walks down the aisle instead of the bride. When you look into the eyes of probably any parent, but I'm, you know, thinking of women specifically on this podcast, um, you see that light in the kids' eyes when they're learning that new skill, but you also see it in mom or dad. Um, and they're not only excited for their child, but maybe they're experiencing that for the first time through their child or experiencing it all over again as they're kind of reactivated into an activity and remembering what that joy was like when they discovered the outdoors. So I just so appreciate the approach that you take, Ron. Yeah, thank you. I, you know, I we talked just briefly before we hit the record button here that um, I think it's so one. I'm so pleased to see so many women coming into to outdoor pursuits and to see dedicated programming like your own podcast. You know that that is providing support and entertainment and and just you know a space for women in the outdoors. It's it's really really important to me. Um, I have a daughter who wears pink frilly dresses, but is not afraid to just tramp through the woods and tear up those pink frilly dresses. Um, last night, she was shooting arrow after arrow from her little longbow that she had, um, you know, in her pink dress. She just, you know, she loves the outdoors, but she wants to show her her pink too. So, you know, it's, it's both sides of it. And, you know, as the father of a, a little girl like that, you know, I see the... Um, the hurdles that are set up sometimes uh, against, you know, women participating in the outdoors. And some of them aren't even intentional. They're just there because of history. And, you know, I want to make sure that we break some of those down. And as we um, get into talking about the second book um, in my series, 
um, there's a very strong um, female character in that particular book that I can talk with you a little bit about. Um, in fact, I just got my manuscript back from the from my editor about two weeks ago, and her first words, this is the first time she had read the manuscript, were, um, what she say? Wow, the woman power in this is amazing. And I thought, okay, I Yay. think I did something right there. Yeah, oh, love to hear that. All right. So, Ron, we were lucky enough to receive a copy of Echo, um, the your first book with the Living Wild with the Orion series. And we want to dive into what inspired you to starting the, the Living Wild series? Like, what was your goal in publishing that book or the series, really? Yeah, I mean, the inspiration was my own children. Um, we read a lot in our house. We homeschool our kids and we read to them, you know, all the time and, and have read to them since they were, you know, little, very little, just babies. Um, and when we got to the point where I was reading chapter books to my son, who's older, and then my daughter, I quickly realized I did not have the sort of outdoor books from Amazon or my own bookshelf or anywhere to continue reading to them. You know, we read the Hatchet series by Gary Paulson. We read My Side of the Mountain. We read, you know, Little House on the Prairie. But there's nothing, there's, to my knowledge, and my apologies to anyone who's listening to this, who's an author and writing this sort of thing. There are, there is none or very few new books coming out that have that sort of same outdoor flavor that's an, that includes an appreciation for science and nature and natural history, but also shows how you can engage with the outdoors, not just not just be just just not just see it from the outside, but engage with it like the Gary Paulson books did. Um, there's just nothing like that out there, and so you know I wanted to fill that gap uh, from a personal level. I wanted it for my own kids, but I also wanted it for all of the other kids who I knew you know, we're not getting it. And so if I'm correct, what age group would you say that your series is aimed towards? Yeah, it's aimed at kids um, from eight to 14. Um, but, but honestly, my wife always jokes, I say that, and then she corrects me and says, it's actually eight to 108. Because, <laughs> you know, like some of the books I just mentioned, adults love them too. And so they're, you know, I, I write, when I'm writing, I'm thinking about like a 12 year old boy or girl, you know, right in the sweet spot between eight and 14. Um, but really, it's it's almost, you know, any age group can enjoy it. And and I have to tend to agree with your wife. Um, <laughs> after reading it, I, I honestly couldn't put it down. It was just, okay, what's going to happen next? I, I really I fell in love with your characters and, and really fell in love with with Echo's um, adventure. I don't want to spoil it too much for our, our listeners, but I did find myself truly engaged as a not 14-year-old or not 12-year-old. So um, it was kind of a trick question, if you will. Like, it's definitely <laughs> geared towards, I have a son who's 12, and he would, I can't wait for him to read it. But I have to say that that I might enjoy it a little bit more than, than he will. So um, thanks for that. Yeah. <laughs> I also um, very much appreciate you uh, having an audio file attached with your book as well. Um, that made life so much more easy and convenient for us. Any busy parents out there that maybe want to play this audio file in the car, on the way to soccer practice, or wherever you're going, um, having that available as like an audio book really is a game changer. Obviously, we all love physical books and just the feel of a book in our hands, but life sometimes isn't always the kindest to us as far as giving us the time to sit down and read. So I do appreciate the accessibility that that provides. Yeah, I get a lot of great feedback on the audible version of the book. Um, the person who I had narrated did a, did a great job with the characters and the voices. And uh, it's just fun. I mean, we in our family, we listen to a lot of audiobooks. You know, we travel, of course, so there's a lot of car time and uh, audiobooks are wonderful for that. I just want to give a huge shout out for their choice of character names. I was so excited to see that you had a Rachel in your book. And that she was uh, she was smart, she was fun, and uh, a lot of times us Rachels get cast incorrectly. So I was I was excited to see your casting of of your character. Yeah, and I um I don't ever I usually don't say anything about this. It's okay on a podcast, but I don't like to give it away in the book. In 
almost all of my characters are named after famous conservationists uh, or, or other people from the outdoors. So Echo's real name is Theodore. He's named after Theodore Roosevelt, um, as it was his father and, and grandfather before him. Um, Rachel is named after Rachel Carson. Uh, Echo's uncle Leo is named after Aldo Leopold. Um, so there are all these sort of connections that when I read it, it makes me smile because I know what's behind the names. And when people ask, you know, it's fun for me to kind of give it up. But uh, I generally don't put it in the book because I want people to kind of, you know, stumble on it on their own. And I love that the uh, inspiration, I guess, that's there to do your own research and learn more about the heritage of those names and how these characters came about them and how well they kind of represent um, what each character stands for in a way. It's definitely an awesome like secondary research opportunity. Um, but speaking of that research, Ron, you know, one of the things you referenced before in finding your niche for this book was um, writing an outdoor book that was um, I don't know. I guess you took a very intentional approach to referencing many real people, places, and events, and made a super conscious choice to describe plants, animals, and survival technique techniques in a way that's like detailed and scientifically accurate. You know, it's not all just made up. Um, you're really detailed and really conscious about making sure that, that was as accurate as possible. Why? Why was that so important to you in writing this series? Yeah, I mean, I guess it. it... I have the sort of the brain of a scientist. I'm trained as a scientist and the heart of a storyteller. And so that's what happens when you bring those two things together. So, you know, the science is there because I think it's really important. I want kids or anyone reading this book to get ideas from it and to be able to go to the outdoors and really discover that there's something called a wood thrush and discover that the description of the song in there is the real description and that they can hear it and discover more about it on their own. Um, and there are dozens of species in the book that someone could do that with. And the same goes for the history. I wanted, if some if someone is intrigued by the Native American history about Lenape uh, Indians in Pennsylvania, I don't want them to find a dead end in their research because Ron included false information in his book. I want my book to be the start of a new and exciting journey for someone who gets really sparked by the things that I'm writing about. And you can't do that if you're writing complete fiction that isn't rooted in science, biology, and history. And so I wanted all of that to sort of be there to really, you know, to, to pull readers in and start their journey into something deeper. Sure. And I, and I think you absolutely achieved that and continue to achieve it. Um, you know, another thing I really appreciate is that in your foreword, uh, before the book starts, you mentioned how important it was for you to represent different cultures um, and different groups as accurately as possible and also as respectfully as possible. And you acknowledge that, um, you know, especially in today's climate, that can be hard and we're all guilty of accidentally making missteps here and there. But um, you really, really tried to represent each group um, and each individual person with as much respect as possible. And um, I think it's important that you included that note in the beginning. And we definitely see that theme throughout your book as well. Yeah, I mean, as, as you two both know, having read the book, there's a lot of Native American history and culture in the book. And in book two, um, that will be coming out next month, there's even more of a Native American um, uh, thread that runs through the book. And, and so, you know, there have been lots of, you know, names for Native American people throughout our history. Um, some of those are offensive. Some of them are just part of history. Um, and, you know, I think the way to deal with that is to just make light of it um, and to treat each and every character and culture in the book with the utmost respect. Um, and, and, I, you know, again, it's part of sparking a journey. You know, I want people to get started on the right foot. And if I'm not on the right foot, my readers certainly won't be either. Oh, Tana and I are both shaking our head. We, we... It, it's apparent and, and and we appreciate that because there's nothing better um, to our original points of, of getting excited about something and then having that avenue to kind of continue your exploration. Um, and, and that in, in short is the scientific method, right? Like yeah. you're building upon pieces um, through your whole journey. So I also wanted to explore um, 
you know, there is a, there's a, as we talked about, there's a fair amount of Native American history and culture there. And that's in part because, you know, Native Americans, you know, lived in the outdoors, you know, and continue to do so for thousands of years. Who better to learn from in terms of, of understanding how you live in that environment and survive in it and do it respectfully with, you know, with regard to hunting, angling, um, medicinal plants, just wilderness living. So I wanted to include all of that as a, as a learning pathway, but also, you know, what I see in schools today um, and in general culture on social media is still a lot of misinformation about Native American history and what happened, um, you know, pre-European settlement, through European settlement, up through the sort of Native American wars, especially on the plains. And a lot of that is just plain wrong, you know, what we see in various places. And so by including Native American characters, it gives me a little jumping off point to try to to correct some of that, to try to, you know, my books certainly aren't going to correct history. I know that. But if if I can show readers that um, some of what they might have understood about our own history and some of what, frankly, still occurs in textbooks might not be exactly right, um, you know, I think it's important to do that if I can. Certainly. And Ron, because you're a part of the conservation community, you've probably seen as well, um, the growing emphasis on crediting so many of those Native American peoples that have pioneered many of our wildlife management practices today and going back and referencing that um, historic and cultural knowledge in our management practices and making sure that we incorporate that today um, when we're stumped by something and saying, hey, let's go back and um, chat with the people that have been doing this on this land far longer than than we have. So um we as as white people, I, yeah. So um, I think that's so important, and it's it's cool to see that echoed in the conservation community as well. And to go to the next step, I, I think it's also important to to focus in on some of the smaller tribes and and groups of of Native Americans that don't necessarily always get the spotlight. Um, I think in in general textbooks, you get a lot of you know if you're going to talk about. Southwest Indians, you always talk hear about the Hopi, you always hear about the Sioux or the you know Cherokee or some of the the bigger tribes. So it is it is fun. Um Tana knows well that I grew up in Massachusetts and the Wampanoag were were the native tribe that that we always learned about. Um, but you don't hear about a lot of the smaller um bands and tribes very often. So it was as a as a non-Pennsylvanian, it was fun to learn a little bit of history of of a different culture, um, and and I thought that was fun to be that you spotlighted and really focused in on um, on that. So, uh, kudos to to your to your writing and and to that focus too. For our listeners that that haven't yet got a copy, haven't yet read, um, will you will you give us the the general premise? the uh the elevator speech if you will um i do want to say no spoilers because i i do want to encourage our listeners of all ages to to get the book so um i'm going to toss it to you ron for any any kind of general premise of the book yeah i'm happy i think we can do that without uh, too many spoilers um yeah so what i did is i created a fictional family that lives in what's called the pennsylvania wilds of pennsylvania and that's an actual region of the state and um, their last name is Orion, named after the constellation, uh, uh, the hunter constellation, Orion. Um, and they're a very outdoor family. They live like, very close to the land. They forage, they garden, they hunt, they fish. And um, their son, uh, who is called Echo, is coming up on his first hunting season. He's about to turn 12. And in this family, there's a tradition, a rite of passage to do what's called becoming the sure enough mountain man. And the sure enough mountain man uh, tradition is about going into the woods and taking a hike on your own and being alone for an extended period of time to, to sharpen your skills, to understand yourself, to begin to learn more about nature, and of course, to do a little hunting. Um, it's similar to you know what in Native American cultures would be the vision quest. 
And so Echo Orion is heading out on his sure enough mountain man trip, um, this big tradition. And let's just say things don't go exactly as planned. Um, you know, some of it is happenstance. Some of it is related to some big mistakes that Echo makes. Um, and he ends up in a, a wilderness survival situation. And he needs to, to use what he's learned from the Native American uh, character we've been talking about. Uh, a part Native American woman named Luna Walpolani. And Luna, in her sort of mentoring Echo before he goes out on this sure enough mountain man trip, reveals to him that she has sort of a uh, a murky background, uh, a murky, murky history that she doesn't even know a lot about, but that there might be some hidden uh, knowledge about her background that maybe Echo could help her to discover. And so there's a whole mystery intertwined in Echo's Sure Enough Mountain Man trip that makes it, you know, I think much deeper than just a survival story. And Echo has to help Luna um, rediscover her whole, her own person, her own self and her background um, as he's discovering himself while he's surviving in the wilderness and learning to hunt and and do all the things that he does. Oh, perfect. There are so many layers to this book, Ron. I love the opportunities that you have to um, explore history through a natural lens, explore nature through a history lens. There's so much back and forth. The personal character development and the relationships that exist are so fascinating. Um, and, you know, right off the bat, too, when I started reading your book, I was like, oh, here we are in chapter two. And um, there are already references to some of the topics that we've talked about on the She Goes Outdoors podcast, one of them being shed hunting. So, um, you know, listeners know we've recorded a whole episode on shed hunting with Marissa Jensen of Pheasants Forever. And um, right now, you know, we're recording in the early springtime, you know, right early March. Um, Tis the season for finding sheds. Why did you feel like this activity in particular would make such a good introduction to Echo and his outdoor adventures? Yeah, I, that's a really good question. No one's ever asked me that question before. And I had to think, like, what, why did I start it that way? And I, I, there's good reasons. One is that I always have to remind myself that my books are being read by people who, you know, when you sell books on Amazon, anyone can buy them. You know, my audience is, is the world. And so there are people who have never experienced the outdoors. They've never gone hunting. Um, you know, they've never done anything like that. And so jumping straight into some sort of a hunting scene probably is not the way to go. But understanding that animals, you know, lose a little bit of themselves like a shed antler and you can look for that shed antler is sort of a soft way to get into the idea of hunting. It also requires a lot of the same skills that hunting requires. Um, and so, you know, by teaching people about shed hunting, it teaches them about nature and about wildlife biology and gives them some way to engage in nature that they wouldn't otherwise have without having to like jump into the pool all the way up to their neck. And then the other reason is, is really more sort of philosophical. Um, to me, a shed antler is a little piece of the energy of the animal. Like it, you, I get so excited. I'm getting goosebumps now just talking about it. Like when you, I pick up that shed like that's a chunk of the energy from the deer that grew that animal. That is meaningful. That's not just something you found in the woods. That's your connection to nature in a way that's real and tangible. Um, and I just, you know, people, no one who's someone who hasn't picked up a shed. If you're listening to this and you haven't picked up a shed, go try to find one and experience what I'm talking about. If you have picked up a shed, you already know. You, you know how it how that feels. I think Marissa would be so proud to to hear that connection being made. And this is just another great example of as you're reading along this book with your family, um, this is an activity that you can get right out and do. And and because it's March, I have to bring this up. It's kind of like hunting for a leprechaun. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe a four-leaf clover, right? You know yeah, you the four-leaf clover exists. It's somewhere, but it's amazing how such a many of these sheds are large, right? They they are off of full grown deer, 
but yet they camouflage themselves so well that you're, you know, you're just looking and, and Echo explains it so well. Like you're looking for this one little ma- thing that just looks out of place and then you can unpack the leaves and there it is. Like, it, yeah, sometimes I think it's like leprechaun hunting. So, yeah, it is. And Ron, um, you know, our, our team had a friendly shed hunting competition at one time. So maybe we'll need to restart that one again this year. There you go. That's great. It, it wasn't friendly. Tiana kicked our butt. <laughs> it wasn't. <laughs> I'm a little over competitive. We could say yeah, that. Remind, remind me not to shed hunt with you two. I can tell already. <laughs> what do you mean, Ron? You don't want in this pool? All right, fine. <laughs> All right. So moving on in the book, chapter seven was is actually one of my favorite chapters. It's entitled "The Hungry Fool," and um, in it, Echo is is he's been out in the woods, he's starving and he sees a rough grouse and he comes to that real struggle that's often called the hunter's paradox um, where he he's, he's kind of playing in the world of ethics. Um, Ron, we wanted to, to dive in a little bit more about why you wanted to, to play out the, the hunter's paradox or, or kind of jump into hunter ethics. Yeah, um, Hunter, I, we'll do Hunter's Paradox first, I guess. I mean, this is a good, you know, killing something is not easy. I, well, for kids, I sometimes liken it to a baseball game. You know, you go to a baseball game, the game wraps up, you put your equipment away and you go home and that's it. If you go out and shoot a deer or anything else, there is a, a, a tidal wave of emotions that hit you. And if you don't get hit with a tidal wave of emotions, you you might be doing something wrong. Because um, I've been doing this a long time, and I still get Hunter's Paradox. I get that feeling of sadness. I get the feeling of guilt. I get a feeling of joy. I, I mean, it, it's all there. There's all these, these different emotions that are all mixed up. And I think, you know, this comes back to the, um, you know, women in the outdoors, too. I think in the male dominated world of hunting, there's a lot of bravado and we don't talk a lot about those emotions that aren't the rah, rah, we did it. We got the deer sort of, of feeling. There's a lot of other stuff boxed up inside of us when we shoot something. And I wanted to bring that out because I wanted, A, I just wanted to make light of it and B, for people who are just getting into hunting or new or have never hunted before, I wanted them to to see that that there's there's a lot of emotion tied to this. We're we're shooting the animals we love. That's paradoxical, um, and so I wanted that to come out. I wanted it. I, I don't. I wanted to make sure that non-hunting readers are not seeing hunters as you know these sort of arrogant killers, but that there was a lot of positive emotion that kind of came into this as well. And I wanted. I wanted. I wanted to show that through Echo's eyes, like how, how what is this doing to this young boy, you know, as he's dealing with this. And Certainly. then the ethical, a quick piece on the ethical part, um, you asked about that side of it as well. So I, without giving any, well, having any spoilers here, something happens when he shoots the grouse and he's not easily able to get it. Like he's killed something and now he can't get to it. Like, what do I do? Like, how do I deal with that? There's an ethical situation here. I could choose not to put any more energy into it and just walk away. Or, you know, I could make the extra effort to make sure I recover this animal that I've, you know, that I have killed. You know, I did this thing. I have to take care of it. Yeah. And I remember, too, Echo kind of working through in his brain um, what the regulated hunting seasons were. And even though he's in a survival situation, obviously, he doesn't want to starve. Um, he still had that ethic in the back of his brain of like, it's, you know, not right to take this animal outside of season or to take any animal outside of season. And that may have been referenced to a deer he saw even earlier in the book. But um, I thought that was really interesting to include as well and to point out that those regulations are in place to manage our wildlife. And part of being an ethical hunter is being a safe and legal hunter as well. Yeah, I mean, that there's so many books about hunting, you know, and and sort of wilderness survival situations ignore all of that. And I didn't want to do that. I want, we haven't talked about this, but 
Echo and the Orions live in modern times. They don't live in his in history the way many of these, you know, the old like Little House on the Prairie is written. And I did that consciously because I want kids to be able to identify with a real family. This is a real, you know, it's a fictional family, but it's it could be a real family of real a real boy named Echo, you know, trying to sort this stuff out and having to deal with hunting regulations. His dad has told him, unless you're about to die, you cannot, you know, violate the hunting regs. You have to you have to be lawful. Um, and so he's trying to do that. So, Ron, another really awesome element that I enjoyed as part of Echo's journey was his use of technology to solve or to help solve kind of the big mystery in the book. And I don't want to give too many details away because, again, we want folks to go and read it for themselves and experience that. But um, when he goes online to research like aerial views of rivers and finding those historic names, that was such a cool element because often I think that and I'm guilty of this too. I'm not just projecting. Um, sometimes we villainize technology as it relates to the outdoors. And it's kind of an either or. It's like, oh, well, you know, get off your rear and you're sitting and playing video games. You should be outdoors or get off your cell phone. You should be outdoors. And what we've seen is such a movement to incorporate technology and understand the ways that it can enhance our outdoor experience, enhance our outdoor knowledge. Um, so it was really cool to see the approach that you took to incorporating technology as a way to learn more about nature and the world around us within Echo's journey. Yeah, I mean, I think that, I mean, Kids growing up today are among the first generation to have to deal with, I don't know if this is a real term or not, but I call it screen addiction, you know, and we're all guilty of it. I mean, I'm sometimes addicted to my phone even, you know, and that's hard to struggle with. And we don't know how youth are going to respond to it, <clears throat> but to ignore the idea in, in a book about a contemporary family and contemporary youth who are engaging in the outdoors to just ignore technology would be silly because the readers are then not going to be able to connect with that family because everyone is using technology these days. Of course, Echo is going to use his iPad to research, you know, the names of rivers and, and roads and areas um, because that's what any kid would do faced with that same dilemma. And so I didn't want to make it hokey and say, just because I love to rub sticks together doesn't mean, you know, somebody else shouldn't use their iPad or their phone. I do it too. So I wanted it to be a, you know, to, to just be real. But I also agree with you that, you know, we can't just demonize technology all the time. We all use it. It's not going away. And it's a great avenue to getting into the outdoors. There's um, you know, there's great, the, the eBird app from Cornell is wonderful. Um, Merlin, the bird identification app from Cornell is wonderful. I use Onyx Maps when we travel all the time. There are lots of different apps and pieces of technology that can get us in the outdoors and enhance our experience. It doesn't all have to be bad. And, and to further on the conversation, you talk about, um, bunch of different outdoor elements you talk about you know really not trying to demonize different things and and we also you talked about really addressing social and cultural prejudices and and I we talked a little bit about this in the conversation already but I wanted to to really kind of throw it your way and have you talk a little bit more because um echo has kind of a, a I don't know a, a Enemy, maybe is the easiest Frenemy, way to, yeah. to call Frenemy. it. Frenemy. <laughs> um, I don't. Yeah, Buster, Buster Brasher um, is kind of like the the anti Echo, if you will, um, and and his family. And just wanted to to let you talk a little bit about Buster and and kind of the 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 background on on his character. Yeah, I love that part of it too. I'd be happy to talk about that. And just as a side note. Um, I once uh, I used to sell firewood for extra money and I delivered a load of a firewood to a guy one time and he paid me in cash. And I said, what's your name anyway? And he said, Buster Brasher. And that's never gotten out of my head. The name Buster Brasher is just a funny name. And so I'm sure he doesn't know it. I've never seen the man again, but um, he ended up in my book, Buster Brasher. Um, so, yeah, Buster is sort of in some ways the antithesis of Echo. 
So Buster Brasher's family are also an outdoor family. They like to camp and to hunt and to fish. But I really, you know, what I wanted to paint there was a family who was not so engaged with nature. They're more thinking about the fastest way to get an animal on the ground, to put it bluntly. They're more interested in what's the best equipment, you know, how much equipment can I buy? You know, what's the, just what's the fastest way for me to get this done and not necessarily the, what I think of as the far more interesting and respectful way of learning the biology of the species you're hunting or, you know, learning about your area, learning about its history as a way to sort of immerse yourself and become, you know, a, a skilled hunter in that way. Um, I think of hunting as a craft. It's something you learn over a lifetime. I've been hunting for 40 years and I still learn every single day. Um, it, you know, it's something you learn. And I see so many people who just want to take the shortcuts. Um, and so, you know, I, I you know, th these two kids are friends, but they have a very different approach to the outdoors. And what a realistic element to include. That's definitely something that as a new, as an adult onset hunter, you know, I didn't start hunting till after college. Um, we've all faced that. And it's like, what is it? I can't even think of what the saying is, but basically, you know, you are who you surround yourself with and you oh, have yeah. to make some real choices about um, how you want to engage in the outdoors and what that should look like. Um, so I love seeing that come out or come to play in the book. And also just the fact that this is like a, a schoolyard relationship as well. And obviously they it sounded like they live pretty close together too. Maybe they were neighbors, but um, you know, our, our kids and I, I'm not, I don't have kids just yet, but um you know, kids go to school and they're exposed to all of these other, I don't know, family dynamics through that setting. And I thought that Echo's stance in kind of standing firm and what he believed in um, without it being a huge, like it was subtle and it wasn't an overarching theme. There was no fist fight. It was just Echo saying, this is what I stand for. This is what I believe in. And I'm firm in that. Um, I just thought that was really powerful. That's one of my favorite elements of the entire book. Oh, thank you. And yeah, if, allow me a little space to tell a story about the new book, The Last Prairie. In the beginning, there's an interaction between Buster and Echo. And Echo is telling Buster how when he walks in the woods at night, like say you're walking in to go hunting and you're going in before daylight, he doesn't like to use a flashlight because he wants to, to sort of puts it sort of oddly, but sort of be one with the wilderness. He wants to be able to do it with his own senses and not alert other animals and have this artificial beam of light sweeping ahead of him. And Buster thinks that's absolutely ridiculous. Buster's like, I don't want to dance with the trees. I just want to get in the woods, doggone it. And then he <laughs> tells Echo how his dad has a flashlight the size of a chapstick tube that lights up the backyard like a football stadium. And that's what you want. You don't want to dance with the trees. And so there's this whole interaction they have just, again, it's just a little tiny thing, but it's a different philosophy of like feeling like you don't even want to shine a flashlight beam in the woods because it's too sacred to you versus lighting up the whole woods with a chapstick size flashlight. You know, what, you know, what do you want to do here? And it, and it really highlights that, I mean, as a hunter, you, you have that kind of internal debate, you know, is it, is it about the quantity of game? Is it about the quality of the experience? Like, what do you as a person um, at any age really find that, that is the driver? Is it the experience with sitting and, and being with family and friends, or is it just, um, you know, as many birds or as much game to fill a freezer. Like we all wrestle with it. It it doesn't matter the age. So it is it is nice to to read um in in a book geared towards, you know, that eight to fourteen age group that that kind of explains to them that you can have morals and you can stand by them and not everyone's going to agree with you and that's okay. But if, if you can ground it in, in your belief and in your reasoning, um, then, then it's okay. And, and other people are going to have their ways and you have to be okay. It, not necessarily okay with it, but you have to be understanding and, and realize that it's, 
the way you do things is not going to be the only way. So I think it, to Tana's point, it's, it's a very subtle, um, it's, it's very subtle in the book, but it is a huge thing. And I'm excited to see that that dynamic comes back um, in the next book. So uh, looking forward to that. Speaking of the next book, yeah. um, we love a strong female character. And it was awesome to see Luna and the influence that she had on Echo's journey and how much that she inspired and educated him and supported him through that journey. Um, And of course, Echo has a very smart sister as well that's a source of support. And I'm curious, will we see Echo's sister or another female character in the protagonist role in the Living Wild series um, in your future writings? Oh, yeah, that's a great question. So um, we'll tackle Rachel first. Well, not literally tackle Rachel. Let's talk about <laughs> um, Rachel is Echo's older sister. Um, she is very uh, environmentally aware. She's very smart, um, you know, very quick witted. Um, and she comes off that way again in the upcoming book, The Last Prairie. Um, but she doesn't play a, a major role in that book. Uh, but I do have a, a have one planned out where Rachel is going to be the the real star. But there is a strong, strong female protagonist in the next book, The Last Prairie. Um, her name is Pony Tallchief. And um, she grew up in Oklahoma on the Osage Reservation. She, well, why don't I, I'll just frame this in giving a little thumbnail of the last Prairie book, if that's okay. That's probably Please, easier. Yeah. I'm going to get in talking about pony. I'll give so much away about the book that it, it'll be better if I just sort of back up. So in the, in the next book, the last Prairie echo goes to Oklahoma as part of a junior intern program to work on the tall grass Prairie where they're reintroducing bison. And his job is to help, learn about the bison and during the calving season, you know, what, a, what's the birth rate? What do they eat? All that sort of thing. Well, while he's there, he encounters a uh, pony tall chief who is this young girl. She's 14. She grew up on the Osage reservation and she doesn't like intruders into her place. Um, she has some resentment towards whites. Um, and specifically this resentment has come up because She's learned that, um, you know, the buffalo were taken away from her people by commercial hunters, by white commercial hunters, especially in the 1870s. And she's young and trying to process all of this. And now this young boy, Echo, is in front of her and she doesn't know how to deal with him and he doesn't know how to deal with her. She, as the, as the Osage tribe, is reintroducing bison there's an opportunity for them to reestablish their traditional hunts. And to do so, they're going to, they're going to honor a special hunter and pony wants to be that hunter. She wants to be the first modern Osage hunter of the new era, but they won't let her because she's a girl. And so she's got to wrestle with this. She can't even go to the, the sort of tryouts they're holding to see if she can compete against the boys because she's a girl. And so Echo has to help her through. Like, how is he going to get her as a girl in? How is he going to help her learn to hunt? Um, she's an expert equestrian. She rides, she's been, that's actually how she got her name, Pony. She, she says she was born on the back of a horse. But she needs help with the hunting side of things. And so, you know, Echo really tries to help her. And they get through their sort of resentment for one another. Oh, that cultural significance of that is just popping. I'm so excited. Um, and I won't dive too far into this, but I love the fact that Echo is there in a supporting role for this strong woman. I think that that has incredible ramifications for the way that um, men can help support women as we're moving further and further into equal rights and equal pay and all of that but I don't want to get too far into that soapbox because we'll end up there for a really long time. But Ron, thank you for including those elements in this book. I'm so excited to read about Pony and about Echo and their interactions um, moving forward. That's so exciting. Yeah, it should be out soon. Um, you know, I have a few little loose ends to, to work on, but I'm shooting for sort of mid-April release date um, for The Last Prairie. And Ron, for both of your 
books. Where can where can listeners purchase or get a copy of your of your print book or the audio book? Yeah, the, the easiest place is Amazon. Um, so if you just search on my name uh, in Amazon, you'll find it. You can also search on um, Echo, and you'll find it. If if you search on Echo, I, I, it was a little bit of a was not intentional, but there turns out there's a lot of kids book named kids books named Echo. So you'll see several if you search on Echo in Amazon. Um, just look for the one that's Echo Living Wild with the Orions. You can't miss it. It's got Echo on the front cover drawing a bow. And listeners will drop those in the show notes, so you'll have a direct link. Um, so check that out and uh, and there's support one of our favorite authors. So um, please do that. Yeah, and but- also on, on Audible as well. I should mention that. Uh, Echo is available on Audible. So if you're a listener of audiobooks, you can go to, to uh, Audible and download it there. And Ron, as we kind of start to wrap up our conversation this morning, I wanted to to get your, your take on what do you hope readers leave your book with after after reading Echo? What do you hope um, they they leave the the story with? Yeah, I, I I want them to leave the story with a love of nature and the outdoors, and a, and not just in a sort of casual way, but in a sort of um, I want them to feel obsessed with it. I want them to want to go outside. If you're a kid, I want you to go out and find a rock and roll it over and see what salamander lives underneath of it. If it's spring, I want you to go out and listen for the birds that are returning from their wintering grounds and see which ones you can identify and start a list. If you have sort of that burning desire in your stomach to maybe be a hunter, I want you to think about that too. What does it mean to to get your own wild food? Um, through hunting or foraging. How does that look? How does that make you feel? Um, I just want readers to get super stoked about the outdoors and nature and getting engaged with nature in whatever way is comfortable for them. I mean, if it's pulling dandelions from between the cracks in your sidewalk, making sure there's no pesticides on them, of course, and, you know, putting them in a salad or cooking them up to make, you know, dandelion jam or something, if that's whatever it is, um, find that thing that really trips your trigger and and get out there and do it. it. It's so true. We talk a lot about just finding nature and wilderness in your backyard. And, and for those of us that are city dwellers or, or country dwellers, it's right around the corner. So great advice there. And, and I have to say that I'm excited for the last prairie as, as a, a person who now resides in the the lost prairie, if you will, the tall grass yeah. prairie. Um, I'm excited to see to see Echo's journey um, coming from kind of the hardwoods of the of the East Coast and into uh, the the prairie, where you know trees are a little bit fewer and far between. So excited to hear that. Excited to read it. Excuse me. Um, and and yeah, just his adventure with all all the new characters in the book. Um, also wanted to just ask what advice do you have for listeners who who maybe got a spark or two from your book and the different subtle things that you've you've incorporated into them and and want to try and incorporate those pieces um maybe it's some of your survival skills suggestions or or getting into this shed hunting like what advice do you have for the listeners that want to get out and start yeah and I'm, i'll uh, i'll sort of steer the advice towards, say, parents who want to get their kids outside more. I think what I see most is that kids want to do what their parents want to do. Kids get excited by the things that their parents get excited with. And if you're a parent and you're listening to this and you're, you know, if you're listening to this, you probably are excited about the outdoors in some way, but show that excitement, get really charged up about doing whatever's comfortable for you in nature. And it could be easy. I mean, you can go out even in a suburban backyard and challenge yourself and your kids to start a fire with all natural material, no paper, no lighter fluid, 
no five gallon can of gasoline. Um, <laughs> get some, you know, make yourself some some tinder, get some kindling, um, allow yourself one match. It's one match, all natural fire. See if you can do it. It's harder than you might think. Um, then have your kids do it. And don't, you know, every parent has their own sort of risk tolerance. Um, we let our kids do all sorts of crazy things living on the road the way we do. And I'm not asking parents to let their kids run around with matches. Um, but, you know, it's okay to let your kids strike a match and start a fire, you know, under your supervision. Go out and make a bow with them. It's super easy to get it, make a sapling bow, you know, with some string and a sapling. You can, in your neighborhood, in the local park, I'm just don't tell them you cut anything. Um, you know, there, there's there's ways that you I'm not advocating for people to go cut down the trees in their community <laughs> park, please. You have to, um, there are things you can do that are pretty easy. Um, so this kind of circles back to your question about technology from earlier. YouTube is an amazing resource. Um, if you've got inspired by reading Echo, but you didn't quite get all the details you needed to actually do it. Go to YouTube and figure out how to start a fire with a ferro rod or to build a simple kid's bow or to set up a an A-frame shelter. Um, you know, there's just so much on YouTube that you can learn. Um, and, and it's fun, too, because you can do the YouTube part with your kids. You know, all of it can connect. Absolutely. And, Ron, you know, when we were talking off, uh, off recording earlier, you also mentioned just the sense of like personal pride that comes from finding your place within the outdoors um, as a kid, as an adult, as a parent, like whatever. Um, there's such a sense of pride that comes from being in nature and being able to kind of coexist and understand your environment and potentially, you know, harvest an animal someday if that's what you want to do or harvest um, wild forage, whatever it may be. So um, I think kind of your advice there and the overall theme of your series really, really will inspire that in people. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, it, it feels so good. Um, the, the notion of self-reliance has always been really important to me. And I think it's important for a lot of people who enjoy the outdoors. And for people who haven't done that, it can, it can be so eye-opening to learn the skills that it takes to survive, and I don't mean survive an Alaskan winter, I mean just to know a little bit to survive outdoors. The feeling of that self-reliance is my, my mom, or my mom, geez, I hope my wife doesn't hear me say this. My <laughs> wife always says that we need to get our cups filled, like the kids' cups got really got filled today. And, you know, learning a skill in the outdoors that can make you more self-reliant will really fill your cup. That gives me goosebumps. Ron, this has been yeah, such a really good conversation. Good. I'm so glad that you found us and you reached out and um, thrilled that we could we could talk today. I do have to jump in here. We need like a jingle for this because I do it so often. <laughs> Dana Soapbox. <laughs> uh, you know, it's your every episode reminder from old Aunt Tana here. Uh, make sure that you, when you are adventuring in the outdoors, are safe. Tell somebody where you're going. Tell someone when you plan to return. Make a plan and stick to it. Echo, I'm talking to you, buddy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> make a plan and stick to it. You know, have emergency equipment. It's so important. Um, there's a lot of technology out there that could potentially help you, but there are simple steps you can take to be safe in the outdoors and make sure that you have a good experience. So um, please, please, please do that. That's it. That's off the soapbox for today. Um, Ron, any last thoughts um, or items that you want to leave our listeners with this morning? But one, I can't help but saying from what you, that your little jingle there um, <laughs> right now, Jupiter and Venus are visible in the, in the evening sky stacked on top of each other in the West. It's a great navigation. If you're out in the woods, it's getting dark. Stars are starting to come out and you say, Holy crap. I don't know where I am. Right now, this time of year, just by knowing where Jupiter and Venus are, and you can't miss them. They're like stadium lights up there. That they, Bingo, you have West. Now you've got, you know, you at least have an orientation point. So, again, you know, self-reliance, cup full. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess the last thing I would say is that none of this stuff can happen. You can't have your podcast. We can't have wild places without people who care about it. And those people who care about it have to have resources to do their work. 
And so contributing to conservation is so important. Um, and I don't, you know, I don't care what it is. I have lots of organizations that I like, but whatever trips your trigger, if it's supporting your local community park commission or your local land trust or a big organization like the Nature Conservancy or one of the organizations that supports, I don't know all of your sponsors or I'd, I'd list all of them up and down, but, you know, you know, organizations that support this podcast volunteer, provide a donation, you know, anything that you can do, it really does help. I spent my entire career working for nonprofit organizations. So I know how hard it can be. Um, it really makes a difference. Ron, we certainly appreciate you leaving us with that message. It's an important one. And if there are any specific groups that you want to give a shout out to, um, we're happy to drop links to those pages in our show notes for today's episode. If people want to go check those out and, you know, consider donating or just learning more about the organization. For um, Ron, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for joining us, folks. Please do go and check out um, Echo, book one in the Living Wild with the Orion series, and be on the lookout for book two. As a reminder, we'll drop that link in the comments. It's available on Amazon. You can get it on Audible. Um, be sure to check that out. Enjoy that with your friends. Enjoy it with your family. Um, and put those ideas and those themes into practice in your own life. That's my challenge to you all. And with that, it's been a wonderful conversation. Wishing you a happy, wonderful, hopefully rainy spring. Uh, we need it. We are so excited to see you outdoors. Outdoors.